what social jet lag is, is where your sleep and wake times differ between weekdays and weekends. Because if you're a night owl and you're having to get up early all throughout the week, you're probably cutting short your sleep on those weekdays because you're not naturally disposed to feel sleepy until quite late in the evening. So you're getting short sleep on weekdays. And then on weekends, you're sleeping in to make up for that. And actually, to quote the circadian biologist Till Ronenberg, who came up with this phrase, social jet lag, the more of it you have, the fatter, dumber, grumpier and sicker you'll be. Hi, my name is Rongan Chasji, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 77 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. I'm now just back from my 10-day promotional trip to Los Angeles to support the US release of my latest book, The Stress Solution. I'm absolutely delighted to see the response out there and also super pleased that the New York Times singled out my book and wrote a supportive feature on it in their weekend magazine. That will make a huge difference. And getting this information out to more people in the United States, I'm really excited to hear feedback from my US audience in the coming weeks and months. In fact, if you have bought the book in America, it would be absolutely great if you could jump onto Amazon.com and give it a review. This really helps with its visibility. Now, this is the fifth episode of the new season of the podcast. And so far, I'm really pleased with how fast listing numbers are growing. I really appreciate all of you being so passionate about this podcast and spreading its message to your family and friends. As the podcast grows, it is clear that I am going to need more help to support me in my mission to help more and more people become the architects of their own health. I am now actively looking for new team members to help me. So if you feel you have got a skill set that would be of value, especially in the realm of social media, please do get in touch and send an email to info at drchastity.com. I would really love to hear from you and see if you might be a good fit to join my team. Now, as I record this intro, I've only been back from LA for a few days and I'm actually doing really well with jet lag. I've adopted a lot of the things that were discussed today in the podcast, on the plane and on my return home. In particular, I've been very mindful of when and how I expose myself to light. Since the dawn of time, humans have worshipped the sun, and with good reason. Our biology is set up to work in partnership with it. From our sleep cycles to our immune systems and our mental health, access to sunlight is crucial for living a happy and fulfilling life. Our bodies and our brains are designed to function during the day and rest at night. But as more of us move into light-polluted cities, spending our days in dim offices and our evenings watching brightly lit screens, we're in danger of losing something vital. Our connection to the star that gave us life. It's a loss that could have far-reaching consequences for our health. This week, I sit down with award-winning journalist Linda Geddes 
to discuss just what those health implications are. We talk about the concepts of night owls and larks and examine whether getting a lion at the weekend is really as restorative as it sounds. We discuss jet lag and Linda shares the fascinating findings of her research in this area, including her own experiments of getting rid of light at night in her own home. Finally, we discuss what we can all do to get a little more light into our days. If you are listening to this podcast during the day, you won't be able to resist the urge of going outside to soak up some natural light. I really enjoyed my conversation with Linda. I think you are going to as well. Now, before we get started, as always, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show who are essential in order for me to continue putting out weekly episodes like this one. I'm absolutely delighted that Vivo Barefoot continues to support my podcast. As you probably already know, I'm a huge fan of minimalist shoes and I've actually been wearing Vivo Barefoot shoes exclusively now for many years, as have my wife and my children. I strongly believe that our feet are one of the most important parts of our body for our movements and our musculoskeletal health. Their function influences how we walk, run, and so much more. Not only have I used them myself for years and found them extremely beneficial for my back pain and general mobility, I've also been recommending minimalist shoes to many of my patients who have reported back improvements in a variety of different complaints, such as hip pain, knee pain, and back pain. I've also started to use them a lot more in elderly patients as I think they can really help with balance and mobility. And actually, my own mother started wearing them a few years ago and saw big improvements with her own balance and stability. Viva Barefoot shoes are thin, wide, and flexible, and they make shoes for every occasion for both adults and kids. Now, for listeners of my show, they have come up with a great deal. They are offering a 20% off to all new customers in the UK, USA, Australia, and selected EU countries. If you have thought about giving them a go, this is a great incentive to start. It's really important for me to say that they offer a 100-day free trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can simply send them back for a full refund. I think this is an amazing offer. If you have been sitting on the fence about trying minimalist shoes, do consider taking advantage. You can get your 20% off for new customers by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. That's vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Linda, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you. Thank you for making the journey up here today. So you've written this amazing book called Chasing the Sun, which I first came across a few months ago, and we've been trying to schedule this for a little bit of time mm-hmm. now. Um, I've got to say, it's a brilliant book. It's such a fun read. There is so much research in there, so many anecdotes. But I think you've really touched on something that doesn't get talked about enough in the context of health, and that is sunlight. So may I ask, how did you start to get interested in the science and the the relationship between sunlight and our health? I think the way I first became interested in it was through research on circadian rhythms. So these are 24-hour fluctuations in 
in our biology, in, but in all over our bodies. So everything from our brain chemistry to when we feel sleepy and alert, which is what most people think about when, when you talk about circadian rhythms, to the functioning of our immune systems, to when we release hormones. And you have these rhythms in, in your biology to help you prepare for regular events like getting up and, and being out and active in the daytime and being indoors and protected and, and sleeping at night. And um, probably about Mm, sort of 10, 15 years ago, I was working at New Scientist as a news editor. And I was coming across a lot of stories about circadian rhythms. I think the International Agency for Cancer Research, I don't know if I've got that name right, um, but had recently declared um, shift work a probable human carcinogen, you know, which suggests that it shift work contributes to cancer, or there's certainly an association between working night shifts and and later development of cancer. And I'd also just written this story about how um, how breast milk varies over the course of 24 hours. So it contains more kind of sleep-inducing chemicals at night compared to in the morning. So I was really interested in this kind of emerging field of circadian rhythms. Um, and around that time, I took a trip to Las Vegas in the US to cover a conference on a completely different, um, a completely different subject you know, Las Vegas is a long way away and I had terrible jet lag. And I was in this meeting with these forensic scientists, actually, um, in a kind of windowless meeting room in this business hotel for about three days, um, working from like nine till five. And then in the evenings, we were kind of going around the casinos and enjoying what Las Vegas has to <laughs> offer. And by the end, and with my jet lag as well, by the end of this, I was just desperate to get outside and just, you know, get a little bit of that glorious desert sunlight. Um, and I just couldn't because the whole city, despite being in the desert, and this was in October, so there was like this beautiful blue sky. It wasn't too hot. Despite this being in this amazing location, it's impossible to get outside. The whole city is kind of set up to shield you from the sun and probably that a lot of that's deliberate because you know the casino owners want people to stay in their casinos and lose track of time and light daylight is a really good way we use to keep track of time but they also deploy light in all sorts of cunning ways so they, they do th there have been studies suggesting that if you pair red light especially with fast-paced music people take riskier gambles and bet more money. Um, anyway, by the end of this, I was just like, I just need to get outside. I need to find somewhere to sit. And I just couldn't find anywhere until I was like walking through this labyrinthine kind of underground shopping complex at Caesars Palace Casino. And um, I saw what I thought was sunlight up ahead. And then when I got there, I looked up and I realized I was standing like under this completely artificial sky. Yeah. And, and I just went, my God, our relationship with sunlight has been completely distorted and, and and changed in this modern world. Las Vegas is kind of an extreme example, but you know, it, 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 I mean, it is extreme. But there's a real irony there on, on one level that I think back. You know, to us as humans, we've always evolved. In many ways, the sun's been our focal point. Right? We've we've had to revolve our life around the sun when the sun comes up we can wake up and and do the things that we want to do in the daytime uh, and then as it as it falls and it sets we start to slow down and we can unwind and, and go to sleep yet you're right las vegas is an extreme in fact on one level it's almost completely flipped it on its head yeah. it's almost in, in many ways living in las vegas or being in las vegas is putting your body into an environment 
that humans have never been in for our entire evolutionary history, right? No, and at night, <laughs> at night, the Las Vegas Strip is reportedly the brightest place on Earth. So it really is, you know. So, so man has in many ways conquered nature yeah. in Las Vegas, or so it would seem, right? Because ultimately, I think what's, what's, what's really beautifully illustrated in your book is how this is not as trivial as it might sound when we're joking about it. There are some really quite serious implications for our health, aren't there? Yeah. Our biology is kind of set up to work with this 24-hour cycle of light and darkness. And if you if you mess with that, things start to happen to, first of all, to these circadian rhythms, so these 24-hour fluctuations in our biology that I talked about. Um, so if you're exposed to light at night, one thing that does is it pushes your circadian rhythms later. That's not necessarily a bad thing unless you have to wake up or go to work to go to work or school the next morning. And if you're kind of seeing light late at night and your, your circadian rhythms are being pushed later, that means the time when you feel sleepy and want to go to sleep is pushed late, later. Um, so you potentially get less sleep. And if you get less sleep, that's going to have an impact on your alertness, on your mental functioning, on your mood. Um, but it's more than that because seeing bright light is also a kind of brain stimulant. It, it boosts your alertness. Um, so if you see light late at night, you're going to feel more awake. But also, if you don't see light in the daytime, you're going to feel more sluggish and, and less alert. And there are increasingly studies showing that bright light actually, it literally wakes us up. So, you know, we now spend 90% of our daytimes indoors where the light levels are like an order of magnitude lower than they are outdoors. Today is kind of grey and rainy and gloomy. It's probably still... Um, so light luminance or, or brightness is measured in this unit called lux. And on a day like today, it's about 5,000 lux outside. On a bright, sunny day in the middle of summer, it could be as high as 100,000 lux outside. But indoors, in the kind of standard office, it might be two to 300 lux. So it's, you know, it's hugely dimmer inside than it is outside. So even, even on a cloudy day, even on a cloudy we day. have evolved to actually have at least five, 10,000 lux of light exposure to our, you know, through our eyes into our body. Yet, you know, for many of us living our, these 90% indoor lifestyles now, we might be getting only two, 300 lux. So what is the implication of that? What does that mean for us? Well, okay. So, so light can influence the timing of those circadian rhythms. Um, it can also influence the amplitude of how of, of those rhythms. So how kind of high the peaks are and low the troughs are. So what you see in people who don't get outside much, and particularly this has been studied in hospital patients and, and people as they, as they age, so elderly pa patients in care homes, their circadian rhythms kind of flatten. So there's less difference between nighttime and daytime in their biology. And that is linked to um, poorer health. So things like depression, um, increased risk of dementia, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, it really, it's incredible to think about this because, you know, I think about, you know, from what you just said, I think about my mother and mum lives by herself now and she's, you know, she's become a lot more immobile. So she'll spend a lot of time inside most of the day. And, you know, she also loves this iPad that I got her a few years ago. And so not only is she not exposing herself to this bright natural light in the day, often in the evening, she's exposing herself to bright artificial light, which again, in many ways, is sort of doing the Las Vegas thing on herself, right? It's mm -hmm. almost flipping what 
we should be doing. And the thing I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last few years, and it was really magnified when I was reading your book, is when we talk about health, you know, the, the, the popular media narrative around health always revolves around uh, food and movement. And I've been quite keen to sort of expand that out to include sleep and stress as well. Um, but but I think there's a really strong case that actually light and our light exposure is another core pillar of health that maybe we have not been thinking enough about. Yes, I think it is. And and our light exposure also plays into those things, especially the kind of movement side of things and stress, actually. Because, you know, if you, in my book, I, I kind of strongly advocate for very small changes to your life, but basically it involves kind of brightening your daytime and darkening your evenings and nighttimes. But one way, one brilliant way to brighten your daytime is just to get outside, do, do a little bit of exercise, get up from your desk. You know, if you start cycling to work or walking to work, even getting off the bus or train a stop early and just doing that like last 10 minutes walking, you know, you're getting exercise. You're also out in nature, hopefully. Um, and that's a kind of stress buster. Um, and, you know, there's increasing evidence that spending all day just sitting down, just not getting up and down again is, is really harmful to our health. And again, if you're just making little efforts to just get up, just go for a walk around the block at lunchtime or, you know, on your, on your breaks, um, I think that can make a difference. It'll certainly make a difference to your alertness during the daytime, but you're also strengthening those circadian rhythms, which are so important for our health. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you say you would you would imagine, but I use this as one of the tips I give my patients in practice. And it's something I wrote about in my first book. And, and there was a chapter called Embrace Morning Light. And it was in the sleep section. And the whole point was to say, when we talk about sleep, we're often thinking about what we do in the hour, hour and a half before bed. And of course, that can be incredibly important. But we forget about what we do in the morning. And I remember when I've heard this from patients, but I also got quite a few messages on Twitter from people after um, they read Embrace Morning Light in the Four Pillar Plan. They said, I've not been sleeping for for years very well. And I now go for a 20 minute walk outside in the morning and my sleep's got better. So although there were other things that could be playing a role, it really is that powerful. Getting outside in the morning is, is really, really powerful, isn't it? For setting that circadian rhythm. And I think you had some, let me see if I've got it here in your book. Um, I, I've, I've actually scribbled all over your book. I hope you don't mind. It's, it's because there's so many great, great <laughs> things to talk about. That's fine. I do lots of book scribbling. Um, and you, you talked about this German study that suggested that exposure to bright light in the morning boosted people's reaction speeds and maintained them at a higher level throughout the day, even after that bright light was switched off. Yeah. And you also mentioned another study when exposure to bright morning lights, um, basically those who were exposed to it between 8 a.m. and noon went to sleep an average of 18 minutes. It took them an average of 18 minutes to fall asleep at night compared to 45 minutes in the low-light exposure group. So this is not just, hey, a bit of light in the day. This is actually changing our biology. There's actually another study that I cite in the book, which suggests that if you, if you it's a lab-based study, and it showed that if you expose people to bright light during the daytime, they sleep better the following night. They get more deep sleep and they get less fragmented sleep. And if they do wake up in the night, they feel less tired the next morning, even though they've been waking up at night. So I think it improves the quality of your sleep. But then there's the mood, there's the mood side of things as well. Um, so we know that 
um, we know that larks, so people who tend to be early birds, wake up early, want to go to sleep earlier at night, tend to be less prone to depression and mental illness. And actually, lots of there's lots of other advantages, health advantages to being a lark. Um, but possibly some of this is because they're, you know, if you're exposed to bright morning light, it push it pulls your circadian rhythms earlier. So even if you're a night owl, if you see lots of bright early morning light, your your circadian rhythms are shifted earlier. And I think why that's important for mood is that mood has a 24-hour rhythm, like um, like sleep and like all these other things. And your like lowest point of mood tends to be around 4 a.m., 4:30, 5 a.m. Um, you know, before you wake up usually. And then you're kind of like going up this slope and getting happier and happier during the daytime. If you shift your circadian rhythms earlier and then you wake up at, say, like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., you're already quite a long way up that slope towards a happier mood. But if you're kind of shifted later, if you're kind of like a night owl or you're, you're making yourself a night owl by your light exposure, when you wake up, you're going to be closer towards that trough of, of low mood. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think let's explore chronotypes because I think that's super fascinating for people, this idea of morning larks and night owls. Mm. Um, as, you were, as you were describing that, I sort of wondered to myself, is it that, uh, you know, night owls are more prone to low mood because of their biology or is it because modern society is set up in a way that you know, that basically it's preferential to be a lark, right? I am a lark. I'm, a, I'm an early bird. Uh, I like getting up early. I'm, I'm a total morning person. So, you know, I can get up and sort of, you know, get hold of the day. And by lunchtime, I've done loads and loads of work and I feel great. Um, whereas I've got friends and, and, and family who, who, who don't really operate like that. And, you know, do you feel that if you don't have that chronotype, you are at a disadvantage in the way the world is set up? Yes, I absolutely do. And teenagers are a really classic example of that because teenagers naturally shift their circadian rhythms later. They can't help it. This is just something that happens at adolescence. So asking a teenager to get up at 7am to get ready for school is like asking you or I to get up at 5am. And there's no one, no reason, it's no surprise they feel kind of groggy and, and cross when they get up in the morning. It's, it's funny you say that actually, because it's, it's what we're recording this at the start of September. So schools have just gone back. And my nephew actually has just moved to secondary school. And after I dropped the kids off at school this morning, I, no, on my way, I saw him at his new bus stop because he's got to get like a 30 minute bus to his secondary school and he was half asleep and he was yawning now he's only 11 or 12 years old so he's not quite a teenager but and I knew I was talking to you this afternoon I really thought then wow this is like of course there could be many reasons why someone is tired in the morning but I thought if this was to continue for a few years I mean is that the best way to start off a teenager in their school day you know I mean, are schools adapting to this research? Are they evolving to this? Do you, very, do you... very slowly. Um, so in the UK, we're, we're relatively lucky, actually, on international terms, or our teenagers are relatively lucky, because in, in the US, on the continent, schools typically start a lot earlier. You know, some schools in the US, at least they used to, start at sort of 8am, 7.30am, some of them. Um, and there have been a number of studies now in the US looking at what happens if you shift the school starting time a bit later, more like 8.30 or 9am, which is what happens in the UK. And it has a really big impact on their wow. 
on their um, absenteeism and on their on their grades as well, actually. Um, there's been less research on this in the UK because schools here start more like 8.30 or 9 a.m. But certainly there are some schools that are starting to take this seriously. There's a, school, there's a private school in London which is allowing its sixth formers to start at I think 1 p.m. or 2 p.m. and do you know do all their learning in the afternoons and early evenings. Um, but there was a study of a secondary school in the UK which changed its start time to 10 a.m. And again, you saw this um, you saw this drop in absenteeism. So kids were less likely to be kind of coming in or not going to school because they were sick. Um, but also their GCSE grades increased following this change. They've now changed back. I'm not sure why they changed back, but they, they changed back and then they saw a, a dip again. It's fascinating that because on one level, society would probably deem late starters a bit lazy, a bit... Um, yes, yeah. and actually, but there has been a study that has shown really? shown that if you have an early bird manager and you're a, and you're a night owl, they will judge your performance as worse than if you have a fellow employee who is an early bird because what that manager is seeing that manager kind of comes to work like you all cheerful and like oh I'm raring to go at like 9am and then they're kind of night owl employees come in and they kind of sit there and they need several coffee coffees to wake up maybe they don't get going um until the early afternoon or even the evening and that like not, that early bird manager has gone home and they don't see that that night owl like really really doing their best work in the in the evenings and there's another thing actually which is that um which is which is this thing called social jet lag so i think another reason why night owls might have worse um worse health outcomes and actually in the works is because of this thing called social jet lag and actually to to quote the circadian biologist till roneberg who came up with this phrase social jet lag the more of it you have the fatter dumber grumpier and sicker you'll be because what social jet lag is is where you your um, sleep and wake times differ between weekdays and weekends because if you're a night owl um, you know and you're having to get up early all throughout the week um, you're probably cutting short your sleep on those weekdays because you, you're not kind of naturally disposed to feel sleepy until quite late in the evening so you're getting short sleep on weekdays and then on weekends you're sleeping in to make up for that so there's this difference between your kind of sleep and wake times on weekdays and those sleep and wake times on weekends and you're effectively moving time zones when you do that yeah for sure I mean look oh, there's so many themes I want to pick up on um I guess on social jet lag we see this in medicine a lot that certain things get triggered by lions at the weekend so it's very well known that migraines are often triggered by lying in at the weekends and once you start to understand circadian biology, you start to now put together some mechanisms as to why that might happen. So people are always told to get up at the weekend at the same time as on the weekday as a, as a strategy maybe to prevent a migraine at the weekends, which is super fascinating. I didn't know that, but, that, but certainly psych psychiatric episodes have been yeah. shown to be associated with jet lag. So, But, isn't, but yeah. doesn't that all support just how strong um, and robust our circadian biology is and how messing around with it can have unforeseen implications. Yes, I think it does. Um, we were just talking about how um, how social jet lag is literally like real jet lag, that you're kind of shifting time zones, you know, twice a week between the weekdays and weekends. Um, your body clocks will adapt, but 
actually what's increasingly becoming evident is that we now know we have these clocks in all our tissues. It's not just a kind of single clock in the brain. You've got them everywhere in your, you know, your heart cells, your liver cells, your fat cells even have these clocks. And they don't all adjust at exactly the same rate. So if you if you change time zones, either by traveling abroad or by shifting your sleep-wake times, you're dragging all of those clocks along to a new time zone, but they don't all drag, they don't all move at the same time. So what you get is this, this kind of circadian desynchrony spreading throughout the body where these clocks start to be out of time with each other and eventually they will all get back in time with each other but in the meantime you know you have this kind of the way I see the body and these circadian clocks working in the body is a bit like a factory assembly line you know to to do something simple like digest a meal it requires coordination between quite a lot of different organs and tissues you know you've got your gut cells you've got your liver you've got your um, you've got your fat cells, you've got your pancreas that produces insulin. So you need this kind of coordinated talk between these different organs. And just like in a factory production line, if if things start getting out of time with each other, you get a less efficient manufacturing process and a like less good product. It's the same with our health, I think. I, I think people who've traveled over multiple time zones will recognize that, that even if you start to adjust to the new sleep time, you know, your gut, yeah. your digestion things aren't quite right so some of it's left behind on your old clock still or it takes a bit longer and you know you can have the sensation that I've certainly felt sometimes when you you eat in your new time zone out of sync with what your body's clock is is telling you is the right thing and the next morning you can actually feel hungover Hmm. and you've not drunk any alcohol but you feel hungover because Everything's just slightly out of sync. Yeah, and I definitely get that. That, That's one of the worst things I find about jet lag is that kind of digestive problems. Um, But actually, food food is another thing. So light affects the timing of our clock and and causes our clocks to change time. But actually, the timing of when we eat also affects the timing of some of those clocks in some of those tissues. So ideally, we want to be kind of syncing our kind of our light exposure and our our eating patterns with you know we want we want to be basically getting up eating and then you know when when it gets dark stopping stopping eating i mean that's the way we evolved and i think if you're kind of eating later there's evidence that if you eat later you're more prone to put on weight even though you're eating exactly the same meal um i think really what we want is regularity both in our light exposure but also in our meal times and our exercise so there's some evidence now that exercise also affects the timing of those clocks yeah absolutely absolutely it's very clear light does food is known to, to to impact the circadian clock and you know, I think we're going to find more and more things are. Mm. And I think this really, for me, it really highlights why I think humans, so certainly if I talk about myself and my experience with patients, when you have a routine that's roughly, you know, pretty similar from day to day, you just feel better. You know, when your sleep times are regular, when your meal times are regular, even Monday to Friday, and you maintain that at the weekends. I mean, some people may listen and go, well, what sort of life is that? That's a you know, people might think that's a boring, dull life. I don't know whether it's my age or not. I love regularity and routine. I love being able to go to bed at the same time, wake up at the same time, eat roughly at the same time. And, um, you know, Sachin Panda, who you've, I think, quoted a couple of times in your book, he's and he's been on the podcast. He He's done incredible research to show that the timing of our meals certainly has huge importance, arguably could be as important as what you eat. I mean, I think the, the jury is still out on that, but... S- 
Yeah. But it's pretty powerful that just changing the timing of your meals can impact your weight, your immune system, uh, and your circadian clock. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think I, you know, so I so while I was writing this book, I made quite a few changes to my lifestyle, most starting with light, really. Um, and we can talk about my experiment. I would I love to talk about that. It sounds like the sort of wacky experiment that I would do with my kids. Like, <laughs> right, kids, daddy's got a new plan today. Like, what is it this time? So, you know, but we will go into that in just I'll a I'll tell second. you about that in a minute. But, but so the first kind of changes I made were to do with my light exposure. But then I got more and more interested in this kind of, this idea of social jet lag and also the, the, the meal timing. And I mean, just in the last year, I've been, I've been recording a a podcast for the BBC, which involves having to get up one day a week, really, really early to go to London. And I, I just started going, this is, this is, I know from all my research that this is bad for me, but I really, really feel it because one day a week I'm having to get up at 6am rather than 7.30 when I normally do. And the next day I just feel, I feel like I have jet lag and I, I, you know, so, so now I'm trying to, I've realized that if I'm going to keep going to London or, or having, you know, some days where I have to get up early, it makes sense to always try and get up a bit early. Yeah. Um, and then, and I, but you know, once you, once you do that and once you establish that regularity, you do feel better. So why don't, you know, you've, you've tantalizingly um, told the listeners and the viewers about this um, experiment that you did. So first of all, tell yeah. me what was the experiment? And also I'm really intrigued to know when you came home one day with this idea and you thought you'd tell your husband, is it? Mm -hmm. And your kids about your new idea, what was the response? Okay. Well, and this is relevant to this whole thing of, you know, well, I don't want to go to bed early and it's really boring if I go to bed early because, you know, a lot of us are like, well, I feel alert at night and I want to go out at night and see my friends and stuff. But after this experiment, I've kind of changed my view of this. So my idea was, um, what would happen if we go cold, cold turkey on artificial light after dark? That was my original thing. I was just interested in what happens if we get rid of all this artificial light. Um, and so I went and saw these sleep researchers at the University of Surrey and, and said, I'd like to do this experiment. Will you help me? And they said, yes. Um, but what we'd like you to always also think about is to try and boost your daylight exposure, which is how I first came across this, this all this research or emerging research about the importance of daylight. Um, and um, so we devised this experiment where, and we did it in the middle of winter, um, where I would turn off the lights in the house after I wanted to do it when the sun went down, but that that was kind of impractical because okay. I wanted to carry on my work as normal, and I I work on a computer, so so I couldn't really. And you're a journalist, and I'm a journalist, and I, I I'm a freelance journalist, so if I don't work, then I don't get paid. So um so it was impractical to do that, but that's kind of okay anyway because you know if we if we evolved un closer to the equator with a more kind of like twelve hour light dark exposure thing, I kind of we we reasoned that that wasn't such a terrible thing to do to turn the lights out at six. Um, so the idea was that from 6pm onwards, there would be no electric light and we would use candles instead. And then in the daytime, I would try, even though it was the middle of winter, I would try, and even though I'm bound to a desk in my work, um, I would do everything I could to get as much bright light exposure as possible. So that was things like, you know, after the school drop off in the morning, just, you know, sitting in the park with my notepad, doing my to-do list outside rather than at the kitchen table where it's really dark. Um, and, you know, going for a walk around the block, like I said earlier, at, you know, at regular intervals, trying to eat outdoors. Um, also, you know, 
just taking, you know, when I made my breakfast in the morning, just going outside with my cup of tea and just, you know, standing in the garden and eating my cup of tea and my, my bit of toast. Um, and also swapping kind of indoor exercise. I did quite a lot of exercise, um, but swapping going to the gym in like a windowless exercise studio for doing the same kind of exercise outdoors. Um, but I had to convince my family to also at least turn out the lights at night. And I, at the time, my, I think my kids were kind of six and four. <laughs> and my it's not too bad. Still, still, you can exert some influence over them still at that yeah, age, I yeah, guess. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I could say this, this is what we're doing uh, and you're going to have to live with it. But my daughter's response was to burst into tears and say, oh, oh mummy, it's going to be spooky. I don't like the dark. And I kind of said, oh, no, it'll be lovely. You know, we go camping quite a lot. It'll be just like going camping, you know, like having fires and candles. And she wasn't completely convinced. Um, my son, who's really into Halloween at first, was like, this will be great. And he also said, if it's like camping, can we have lots of marshmallows? <laughs> <laughs> so I did a lot of bribing <laughs> with marshmallows. Um, but actually, by the end of living like this, you know, we, we did this on off for six weeks in the middle of December. Um, well, it was beginning of December until mid January. And by the end of it, it was my, it was my six-year-old daughter who was the one who was saying, I really like it. It's really cozy and, and nice in the evening to have the lights dimmed. And it was my son who was complaining that he couldn't see his toys and he wanted to watch telly. Um, but you know, it actually, it actually was a very positive experience for us. What, what was the impact of doing this? So, um, you know, for you and your husband, sure, but also I'm interested with your kids did you notice anything different were they was their mood different energy were they sleeping better I mean what what went on with the family I was the only one who actually feel I I, I did a load of tests on myself so, so you objectively tracked your data I tracked my data I didn't track I didn't track my family's data because it was just too complicated <laughs> uh, and you know my kids go to school and it's, it's difficult to control all that stuff um, but I tracked myself very very extensively um so the impact on me was that, first of all, um, I felt sleepier earlier in the evening. It was December. It was the run up to Christmas, which is a really sociable time. So we did have quite a lot of guests coming to our house, I think in part out of curiosity to find out what on earth I was doing <laughs> and what it was like to live with with candles. Um, but, you know, there were I was definitely sleepier earlier in the evenings. I wanted to go to bed like at sort of nine, 10 o'clock rather than 11 or 12 o'clock. Um, I didn't always do that because of social obligations, but I wanted to. We also, um, we once a week, we took readings of my melatonin. Now, melatonin is a hormone that you release. It's under the control of the circadian clock and you release it in the evening and at night. And it's basically a kind of biological signal to your whole body that it's time to shift change into night mode. And one thing it does is it impacts on the sleep centers. So it does tend to, you know, you release melatonin and your brain kind of goes, ah, nighttime, it's time to feel sleepy. Here's some sleep signals. Um, and what we found was that I started secreting melatonin between one and a half and two hours earlier than when I lived normally. So that explains why I was feeling sleepier earlier, because my body was was saying it's nighttime this is, two hours earlier. I mean, for people listening, I just want to emphasize how 
Now, how striking a point you just made. We're talking about a very important hormone in our body. Yes, it's associated with sleep. There are other studies suggesting it's an antioxidant, that it may have some anti-cancer properties, potentially. And, you know, we can maybe explore that later in our conversation, but this is an important hormone that is under this circadian clock that simply by switching off artificial light in the evening you are shifting maybe two hours beforehand. You're changing an important hormone's secretion by two hours. Yes. That is significant. If a drug was doing that, we'd be talking about it. There would be a list of side effects on it. Yet we're sort of, many of us are doing that every evening on our devices without the awareness of the implications. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is that I also, so I did some weeks where I was turning off the lights in the evening we did a week where I both turned the lights off and got outdoors more. And we did a week where I didn't worry about my light exposure in the evening. I just got outdoors more in the daytime. And on that week as well, we saw this shift towards earlier melatonin secretion. So are you saying that even if you didn't, you can mitigate the impact of your sort of artificial light exposure in the evenings by getting more daylight in the day? Yeah, well, you can shift your clock earlier by getting more daylight in the day. But that um, German study you mentioned earlier about if you expose people to bright light in the in the morning, um, that improves their alertness throughout the day. That also showed that it mitigated the effect of bright light at night on circadian rhythm. So usually if you see bright light at night, it will shift your clocks later. If you see bright light in the daytime, it seems to stop, even if you're exposed to bright light at night, it seems to stop yeah. that shift. It's, and it's almost like your body locks on to the brightest sort of source of light, light it sees in that 24-hour cycle and uses that to kind of set its timing. And that is, for me, that's like a, I mean, I've seen some of this research and I think that that is something that people should really be taking hold of and going, okay, look, trying to get people to reduce their screen exposure in the evening can often be very challenging. God, I know that myself. It's extremely challenging on a regular basis to do that. Now, at least by getting more natural light exposure in the day, you are actually potentially insulating yourself from some of the implications of being on your screens in the evening. So people can almost how can I put it, have their cake and eat it, right? If they get outside more. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I think so. But I think you still ideally want to, you don't have to switch off your screens, but you can dim your screens. You can tune out some of the blue light or blue wavelength light, which our circadian system seems to be particularly um, responsive to. And you can do simple things like, you know, you don't have to get rid of screens and go back to the dark ages and just have candles in your house. You can, you know, just switch off your overhead lights and just switch to like dim table lamps around your home as well that's going to dim your light exposure and then if you're combining that with more daylight then that's going to that's going to be better yeah what did you do i'm intrigued because you know we actually try and do some of these things in our house the more i read about light the more i get quite particular on it Mm. in the evening so i don't want these lights from the ceiling on i just want either candles or dim lights on but our bathroom has got these big bright led lights in yeah and so obviously it's sort of summery time at the moment so i tell the kids you don't need the light on in the bathroom when you're when you're going but what did you do at night in the bathrooms yeah well i'm really annoyed about our bathroom lights actually because when we when we moved into our our house five years ago we got these dimmable bathroom lights um and they were great because we've got the led bulbs in the ceiling and you could pull the cords and it would dim them right down so that's great but then there was some problem with them and our our electrician basically said sorry we can't we can't sort out the dimmer and now the only thing we have in our bathroom is 
bright lights and that's a problem so I now have this little night light that I use when I go to the bathroom at night I just put on this little you know you just shake it and it comes on and it's just a dim light in the bathroom so you can see but it's not this really bright yeah. glaring thing um when I was doing my experiment I think I used candles which is a bit of a health hazard or health fire hazard, hazard. Nice. Yeah. yeah yeah we say that and, and I guess it is um you know before the advent of artificial light I'm sure that's what people did, right? Or... Well, yes. Well, I was about to say, I went and stayed with an Amish family in Pennsylvania while I was doing the research for Chasing the Sun. And they have oil lamps in their in their bathrooms. So, you know, the kind of paraffin, old-fashioned paraffin lamps, that's that's what they tend to there use. There you go. Well, we're going we're gonna to go to that. Let's just close off your experiment. So you were noticing big changes. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. So, so I also tracked, I did these kind of mood and alertness questionnaires just before I went to bed each night and when I woke up in the morning. Um, and the main thing I saw from that is that on the weeks when I was doing these interventions, like cutting out light and getting more daylight, um, I was waking up raring to go. I was waking up alert and my morning mood was much better. But then the impact on the rest of my family. So we didn't track them in as much detail, but um, definitely my husband commented on how nice it was in the evenings and how he just felt more relaxed my daughter at the end of this whole ordeal um was you know saying I really like it it's really relaxed people who came to our house to visit in fact we had a new year's eve party in the dark and um apart from you know nearly giving our guests food poisoning because we couldn't see if we'd cook the beef burgers <laughs> <laughs> and nearly chopping my finger off um apart from those things which um you know living with candles are are problems. Um, they also commented, we had some friends who'd been at another party first and then they came to our house and they said, wow, it's really chilled out here in a really good way. Yeah. You know, people, people behave differently when, when the lights are low, I think. Um, and the other thing on that New Year's Eve party that everyone commented on was we, you know, we had quite a lot of people over. And so we put, and we've all got young children. So a lot of people put their kids to bed up upstairs in our in our house and you know usually you've got kids if you try and put like a load of sort of three to eight year olds to bed en masse in a in a room they're not they're not they, asleep they, three they're hours not, later. you know they'll still be up at midnight um but they were they, i kid you not they were all asleep by nine o'clock you know what it's it's so interesting to hear that because i really do feel that light influences you know it, it exerts such an influence on the way we are, our moods, our sleep levels, our alertness. So much is influenced by lights. And I just don't think we, we've taken it seriously enough. I remember coming across some of this research a few years ago when my kids were young. My kids would always get up super early and they always wanted a nightlight on in the hall or in their room, which was a white nightlight. And a few years ago when I was researching this and I came across that red light has a very has has less of an impact on our circadian rhythms than, than white lights or blue lights and so I thought okay fine so I bought a a red bulb and put that as a night light and I'm not kidding you instantaneously and again this is not a scientific experiment this is just my experience of this my kids were sleeping an hour later every morning consistently and I thought so in my head, I was thinking, this is not a coincidence. Their light, their light, their nightlight has changed from white to red, and it's it felt as though it was no longer altering their circadian rhythms. So they were they were sleeping for longer, and you know it's just something 
It's, it's, it's interesting to, to reflect on that and then hear the story about when you don't have artificial light in the evening, you put all these kids together en masse and, and they all fall asleep. It just makes me, it really makes me reflect on have we missed over the last 20, 30 years in all our discussions on health, have we missed a big part, a big piece in the jigsaw? Could our exposure to light potentially be more important than the food that we eat? I don't think we know the answer to that yet, but I think certainly it's been underappreciated. And also it's really worth just reflecting on the fact that, you know, we we take light at night for granted. It's only 140 years since Thomas Edison invented the incandescent light bulb. Before that, I mean, we had gas lights for, you know, a few decades before that, but, you know, it's it was in the early 1800s that, and that's only, you know, that's only just over 200 years ago that light in the evening was a thing. Before then, all we had were like tallow candles or whale oil lamps, which most people couldn't afford, or firelight. And so most people went to bed not long after the sun went down. They stayed up a little while around fires and so on, but they didn't have artificial light. And our biology is set up for there to be darkness at night. It's it's like... It's amazing to hear how malleable our, our body clocks are because you made the change and experiment with your own family and you've, you're suddenly feeling sleepier than you normally are. Uh, when my wife started wearing these blue light blocking glasses that I got her in the evening, so even if she went on her laptop and she put her, her blue light blocking glasses on, I think for a week at 7 p.m., by half seven, she was yawning her head off and thinking, and normally she could stay up till 10, half 10. Yeah. And so suddenly by blocking light exposure, you're almost allowing your body to return to its to its natural rhythm. And I think this has got implications. I mean, we've obviously talked about night owls and, and morning larks. And um, what I find interesting about this is that I accept that there are different chronotypes. But I also think that some people believe themselves to be night owls, whereas they're actually larks, but they're using light to shift their rhythm. You know, this is just what I've seen with friends and with some patients where they've always sworn at their night hours. And as they yes. start to change their light exposure, they find actually that, that, that they're morning larks. So yeah. I just wonder what your view on that is. Yeah, well, I always thought I was a night owl. And then I got chronotyped. I went, you know, these university, in fact, right. I was making a documentary for the BBC about, about chronotypes and night owls and larks. So I got chronotyped myself, which involves doing this questionnaire. I discovered that I'm an intermediate type. So actually it's a spectrum. You're not, I, you're not, not one, one or the other, but I'm kind of somewhere in the middle between these extremes. But doing this experiment made me realize, actually, I'm far more of a morning person if I let myself be um, than, than I give myself credit for. I mean, what has, when did you do this experiment? Was it um, last Christmas? It was two Christmases ago. Might even be three Christmases ago. Okay, so we're at least two years past it. Mm. So given that you've written a book on this, mm. right, and you researched it and you know the implications, I just would love to get an idea that... The, the sometimes we know the right thing to do, but the modern world makes it hard for us to practice yeah, what we know. And that, yeah. that forget light for a minute. That goes for anything. Where even eating the right way or moving enough, you know, we're always fighting against it in the environment in which we live. So, with all your knowledge, with your research, with your own experience, what has managed to stick in you and your family's lifestyle from over two years ago? Yeah dimming the lights in the evening so not so 
you know, we still use quite a lot of candles, actually. We still tend to light candles when we have dinner. Um, I have realized that just using candles is completely impractical. I mean, for one thing, there's the air pollution um, worry because, you know, you're releasing a load of soot into your into your house. Right. Um, but you can get, so we so I've installed these color-changing light bulbs, dimmable color-changing color smart light bulbs. Um, so I use them particularly in our kitchen. Um, and particularly over our kitchen island. So I can kind of, you know, I can filter out all the blue light in the evening and make things quite dim. And then, you know, add in candles when we're sitting down for dinner. Um, and then daytime, I, I exercise outdoors now. Yeah. I used to be a real gym bunny. And now I, so this morning, even though it was, it was raining this morning and I went out and did this hit class in, in the park with a load of other women in the rain. And I felt brilliant afterwards. So those are the kind of two two big things. Like I said, I'm kind of working on trying to be, have a more regular sleep wake cycle. Um, I don't always achieve it. Um, but when I don't achieve it, I'm more mindful of like how I feel the next day. And I kind of go, I really need to stop doing this, but it's difficult. Yeah. It is difficult. I think the two things you mentioned, I mean, the, the gym and exercising outdoors again, is something that I think I've started to shift to more and more over the last few years. Again, I would go to the gym quite mm. a bit and, I just don't want it really anymore. Mm. I mean, I'll go occasionally, but it's, I think, A, I'm drawn to, to movement and, and the natural environment more now. Um, I know the benefits of nature. I know, you know, all, all the studies on that. But at the same time with the circadian biology research, you know, actually I should try and get outdoors as much as I can. Yeah. And there's, I think there's, there's something freeing about running or exercising in the rain when you know that, you know, actually... Yeah, she feels great as well afterwards. You feel yeah. like you really conquered the elements. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's something I can totally resonate with. And yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell you the other thing I've really done is I've taken up wild swimming. So there's a there's a lake God, in North snap. Bristol. Yeah. But I, I, this is and I'm completely addicted to it. Oh my it. God, I can't believe you're saying that. <laughs> the last three months, I, I did it for the first time in Bantham about in the middle of June. Yeah. I was scared out of my wits and I'm hooked now. I'm yeah. utterly hooked. Yeah. You've got to start doing it in the winter. So, oh, so I look forward to it. Yeah. Where do you go? <laughs> There's a lake in North Bristol called Henley's Lake, and right. it has this kind of old school, um, uh, I, I guess it's an Edwardian kind of swimming club. Um, it's just celebrated its centenary, actually. Um, so, and they have a they have a little sauna there. So this this I when I was researching the book, I went up to Scandinavia to kind of figure out how they they deal with the winter. Um, and one thing I noticed in Sweden was that they're really into saunas and jumping in, you know, into the Baltic Sea afterwards, which is completely freezing, and you get this big endorphin rush. Um, but it but but also I went up to Tromsø in the far north of Norway, where um, Given the latitude, you'd expect there to be a really high prevalence of seasonal affective disorder, and there isn't. Um, and so there have been there's, there was a study into why this might be, and what that found was that it could be to do with people's mindset up there, their mindset. So um, they have far more positive attitudes to winter compared to people in the south of Norway. And I started thinking, well, that's really interesting. I think I need, because I get a bit miserable in, in the winter and my mum definitely does. And I, I kind of went, well, I really need to find some things to start looking forward to in the winter time. Um, and outdoor swimming, maybe I could do that in the winter and get that like sauna endorphin rush as well. So last winter, I, I like once a week would go down to Henley's Lake and, and get really hot in the sauna, go into the lake well, like you freeze and then get back in the sauna, well, and it was brilliant. Some of my best mates live in Bristol, actually, and I think um, 
Well, if they're listening now, I'll be coming down this winter, guys, to stay. And we'll, mm-hmm. we'll all go to the lake. Uh, Henley's Lake, is Henley's it? Henley's Lake, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to try that. Just taking a quick break in today's conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. To be really clear, I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods. But for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. So you mentioned this place in Norway you went to. Is it the whole of Norway that doesn't get affected by no seasonal affective disorder or just this particular just spot? Just this particular spot. And so, also so- I think Spitsbergen, but then people who go to Spitsbergen have got to be a little bit crazy. <laughs> anyway, you know, this is like in the far... But so this sort, what's it called again? Tromso. Tromso. So uh, tell me a little bit about Tromso. What's going on there? Why have they got a positive mindset? Is there something historical that's led to that? So Tromso's in the Arctic Circle. Um, Generally, the further north you go, the higher the prevalence of seasonal affective disorder is. Interestingly, the Amish are another, the Amish are, you know, again, we talked about Amish light exposure, so they don't have electric light, um, but they also spend a lot more of their daytimes outdoors because they, a lot of them are agricultural workers. The women tend to tend large gardens. Um, you know, they grow their own, grow their own food and they like walk or scoot around because they're not allowed to drive cars and they have the lowest prevalence of, of seasonal affective disorder of any Caucasian population studied so far which also suggests that our light exposure might have something to do with this. Um, but certainly the further north you go generally, the higher the prevalence of SAD is. Um, there are So there does seem to be a little bit of a genetic adaptation. So if you look at the population of Iceland, they also seem to buck this trend a little bit. Um, and there was a study that found that people of Icelandic descent living in in a little area of of Canada um, had a lower prevalence of SAD compared to other Canadians living nearby. But yeah, if you go, if you go to Tromso, they also seem to buck this trend, even though the rest of Norway, you know, people in the South don't like winter so much. Um, And this psychological study was like set up to try and figure out what it is about people in Tromso. And they found that they have this positive um, winter mindset. So in Tromso, in, you know, between mm, kind of early December and mid-January, the sun doesn't come up above the horizon. Um, I went there about, I think it was about sort of the 10th to 15th of January. And so the sun was on the verge of coming back, but it wasn't quite back. Um, So it was a very weird, it was a very weird experience, actually. In the morning, there was light. It felt like the sun was about to come up. And you know that if you're ever out just sort of before dawn, just before the sun comes up, it's kind of like quite a magical time. Yeah, for sure. And it felt like that in the mornings and the light was quite pinkish. And I think another big thing about Tromso is they have a lot of snow. So you've got this kind of pinkish light bouncing off the 
off yeah. the snow. A lot of the houses are painted white. So actually it's a kind of quite magical, magical place in the winter. And then you get to kind of towards noon and, you, and you're still kind of like, oh, any minute now the sun's going to come up. And then suddenly it starts to get darker again. Wow. And it really messes with your perception of time. So I remember thinking I was, gonna, I was booked in to go and see the Northern Lights that evening. And um, I was spending the day walking around Tromso interviewing people and, you know, getting a sense of what it's like to live without the sun. And, um, and I, and I'd, I'd arranged with my Airbnb host that I was going to borrow some cross-country skis and, and kind of go off cross-country skiing. Yeah. And I suddenly was like, oh my God, I don't have enough time. I've got to go and see the Northern Lights like really soon. And then I looked at my phone at the time and it was only about 2 p.m. But, but you felt it was like I 5 or 6 like, p.m. I felt something. like it was sort of 6 or 7 actually. And I, I needed, and, and just that lack of sun and the fact it was getting dark so quickly. And one of the locals feel that as well, because I guess you'll be, your whole mindset and, and perception of time is based around presumably being in the UK. So mm. at that time of year, you know that, you know, the sun starts to set around four or half four. And yeah. so I wonder if people who live there all the time have started to adjust to I that. Think, I think they have, but they see, they very much see those dark times as, as special times. They they kind of embrace this whole concept of coslig or cos, which is basically coziness. And so they, you know, they they kind of go, okay. And I interviewed a, so this, I interviewed a, a Sammy reindeer hunter, a Sammy reindeer herder, um, you know, kind of in, indigenous people of the far north. And he said, yeah, well, we've, you know, we, we accept that our, we are different people in in the winter and and the spring and the summer and the autumn. And he said, you know, in the winter, I don't feel very sociable. I don't want to go out and see people, but I just, you know, I enjoy spending time indoors by the fire. Um, Mm and and with close friend you know with close family and then in the summer and the my airbnb host also said this she said you know in summer people are crazy you know we go out hiking in the mountains at two in the morning people are different and they accept those differences yeah. but they also get on with things you know they also because they're forced to everyone everyone has cross-country skis um you see people running with head torches um you know because it's dark and they want to get some exercise so they go out running with their head torches they have these cross-country ski tracks that are all floodlit children's playgrounds are floodlit so you know you've got kids climbing around on climbing frames in the dark but they can see because there's lights um and they just get on with things really i mean for me there's so many take-homes from that i mean one take-home might be that maybe we can reframe the way we view winter and autumn and dark nights and you know if i you know, as a parent of young kids, I always am very conscious of the language I use around them thinking, you know, for, for example, it's something I mentioned on the podcast before. Um, you know, I grew up when it, you know, my parents are immigrants from India, you know, they've grown up in very hot, sunny climates yeah. and come to the UK. And I also, I, I very much, you know, if the weather was bad, I wouldn't want to go outside, I want to stay indoors. Mm. I've almost gone, I've flipped, I've gone the other way with my kids. And, you know, if it's weekend time, I'm like, it's raining, oh, brill, we can go out and get wet and muddy and really yeah. try and use language so that I don't start to condition them yeah. in a way that, you know, hey, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I, I'm just trying my best like all parents are. Yeah. But it makes me think maybe we, you know, we and any parents are saying we could take that approach for winter and go, hey, look, it's going to be dark, it's going to be cold. What are the cool things that we can do now? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I think so. And there's, there's some interesting research coming out of... Uh, uh, a lab in America looking at using cognitive behavioral therapy for seasonal affective disorder. So basically, um, trying to challenge people's perceptions of winter and, and basically, you know, rephrase winter. So rather than kind of going, I hate winter, I can't do anything in winter. 
rather like fra- framing that as winter's a bit more challenging. I have to think harder and work harder to find things that I enjoy, but I can still do it if I if I put some effort into it. And it, and these studies of of CBT for for SAD suggest that actually it can be as effective as light therapy, and the effects of it might be more long lasting than than light therapy. So although you know, although your books about chasing the sun and and sunlight, um, it 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 sort of what I'm getting is that mindset plays a role here as well, right? Yeah, I think so. Yes, it's yeah. light exposure, but it's also our mindsets yeah. as, as we go into these things. Super, super fascinating that you've got to, to visit these areas and actually experience that. It sounds magical, actually, the thought of actually experiencing that sort of pink hue of light and, and yeah, the sun not totally being at the horizon. Yeah, it's totally beautiful. And I'd love, I'd love to go back again. In fact, I want to go back in the middle of summer as well. I, I'm already thinking, oh, that might be a nice thing to go and do this winter at some point. So I'll have a look, see what flights are like that. It sounds cold as well. Um, it's pretty cold. It's yeah, pretty cold. but it's, you know, it's beautiful. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I've got, I was actually reminded, all this stuff reminded me of a thing. I had a, a Swedish friend when my when my babies were little um, called Hannah Gronberg. And and she she taught me this phrase that there's no there's no such thing as bad weather, only inappropriate clothing. And I, I completely agree. And, and doing my experiment and kind of getting outdoors more in winter also taught me that. I do now like in winter i try and get out and i just put on more layers and lots of waterproof clothes and get out there and also you know really actually winter we often look out the window and go oh god it looks horrible and cold and gray and gloomy but once you get out there it's not as bad as you think it is and often it's really beautiful and you know your parks and places are often deserted so you have the whole space to yourself yeah no for sure i wonder if these are problems that affect people in the equator as much in the sense that you know in the equator you know, typically the weather would be a lot better. I guess people would naturally go outside more in the, in the daytime just because the weather lends itself to that. Of course, it could be too hot at certain times. But I wonder if they, you know, there's many other factors to consider, of course, but even if they are getting modernized and being on their screens in the evening and exposing themselves to artificial light, I wonder, has the impact been less on them because of the fact that they're getting so much natural uh, sunlight in the day. Do you know anything on that at all? I don't know about that, but one thing I would say actually is that let's forget about light exposure at night. But one one big problem that's emerging in in those countries is um, is vitamin D deficiency because everyone's spending so much more time indoors, and because the darker your skin is, the more time you need to spend outdoors to to make vitamin D. Um, so vitamin D deficiency is a growing problem in those more southerly countries yeah and it's you would never expect that because you think they've got all this sun out there yeah. and it's the same you know my family from india it's the same thing there and it's it's interesting actually that culturally uh for my parents generation you know they never wanted to be out in the sun so you know i always want to go out in the sun and my folks wouldn't want to go out and particularly my mum wouldn't want to go out in the sun and it's 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 sort of bizarre because we're the other way actually here when the sun's up we want to get outside and enjoy it and i think if you've grown up with it certainly culturally there's many other reasons for why they might want to stay inside which is it's just super fascinating yeah and actually one thing i think i should say because i've been talking about all this importance of getting outdoors i certainly wouldn't advocate that people get outdoors and go out without sunscreen and just you know bake themselves because the sun is a double-edged sword. You know, sunlight is really important for synchronizing our circadian rhythms and so on, but it's it still does, too much of it does um, raise your risk of skin cancer. So I think you have to be careful of that. I think the other thing to say actually about, about light exposure and, the, and countries like India and particularly China is that there's this growing epidemic of short-sightedness among children because kids are increasingly 
spending so much of their time indoors in in lessons, particularly in in China, uh, and also Sing- Singapore. There's a lot of these East Asian countries where there's this big boom in short sightedness, and it's because um, we need to be exposed to a certain amount of bright light during the daytime for our eyes to develop properly. And if you're indoors the whole time, your eyeballs basically elongate. And so you, you're more likely to come short-sighted. I mean, the prevalence of myopia has reached about 90% in some of these countries. It's yeah. really terrifying. It really is terrifying. Um, it's interesting for me that from your experiment a couple of years ago, one of the things you as a family do now is you use modern technology to help replicate natural environment so you've got these cool dimmer lights you can move the red lights red wavelength of light out which sounds amazing yeah get rid of the blue at night yeah which is brilliant because that's presumably what we're going to evolve more and more to is we're going to see all these companies actually start creating uh lighting solutions that make it easier for us to live in the modern world Mm -hmm. but also to try and replicate what's going on outside as much as possible but obviously we mentioned the amish a couple of times here and you know, I, I remember reading this bit in the book, and it's, it's so interesting that you actually went and spent some time with the Amish. So, the Amish are, are a community who, you know, still live, from what I understand, very much in a way that, that they have lived for many years. And I wonder if you could share your experience of living with the Amish, but also how did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, I was interested in. Well, I was interested in this whole thing about electric light at night, first of all, and I wanted to find some communities that didn't have light at night. So there have been various studies suggesting that if you look at tribal societies in, say, Tanzania or Bolivia, that they go to bed earlier and wake up earlier than we do in the West. But those are kind of, well, they're not equatorial countries, but they're a lot closer to the equator than we are in Britain, say. Um, And also they live in very different conditions, very, very basic conditions. And and so I was like, I wonder if I can find a community or a society further north, like more akin to North Americans or British people who live in kind of fairly comfortable conditions and more similar to to we do, but who just don't have electricity. So I started like thinking about off-grid communities and that kind of thing and doing lots of searching in the sort of medical literature. And I came across a couple of studies by a researcher called Theodore Postolaki at the University of Maryland, who'd been looking at the Amish. And I was like, oh, the Amish, huh, I don't know much about them. Um, And he was very interested in their light exposure so actually, I remember I was in I was in Norway when I finally managed to connect with uh, Theodore over over Skype, and we had this really fascinating conversation actually very late at night um, about about light and the Amish. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to be coming to the US um, to because some other things I did in the in the book was do some stuff like I, I met with an American submariner um, because you know they they spend. Yeah. months without any exposure to sun. Um, so I, I said, well, I'm going to be coming to the US. And I was thinking, I was reading your papers and thinking about going and staying with an Amish family to experience what it's like to live without artificial light. I found a couple of B&Bs and they said I can come and, and stay with them. And he said, yeah, but you know, they, they are, they're not like real Amish. It's not, you're not going to get the authentic Amish experience because they're used to having visitors. They've been granted a kind of special dispensation by their by their community to be allowed to have visitors. The whole thing about the Amish, the whole reason they they live off grid is because they're trying to keep the outside world out. They're trying to insulate themselves from the modern world. So they're not opposed to electricity per se. They do have like um, rechargeable battery operated 
power tools in their in their yeah. workshops and stuff but they they don't want the they don't want artificial they don't want electricity to you know bring things like radio television the internet which they feel will they don't use cars really... either right do they so no. I've, I've heard that's because they don't want to fragment their communities and if people Absolutely. have got a way Keep of people get... close yeah yeah, and yeah you know what i'm sorry to interrupt but it's it's interesting isn't it that we might consider them to be quite extreme mm. relative to how we live yet you know we now are seeing in the scientific literature the importance of community yeah the Amish have community yeah we're now seeing the implications of these fragmented societies we're living in, um, the, the stress, the sort of uh, health implications, you know, mental health problems are on the rise. And again, you're saying that in mm. the Amish, they've got, what was it, the lowest rate of seasonal, of seasonal affective disorder. disorder in any Caucasian population. Yeah. So although we may, not myself, but I, I say we, a collective, we may look at them as living very different lives to us that we may not enjoy on many metrics, they're doing pretty well, aren't they? Yeah, and I tell you what, their, their dads are more involved in the child rearing as well. Really? So, so one way I really connected with this Amish family. So, so wow. what? I'll tell you. I'll finish my story. So, what happened was that I contacted this uh, researcher Teodor Postolake, and he said, "You don't want to go and stay in an Amish B and B. I tell you what, I'll connect you with um, with this woman, Hannah." who is my Amish liaison person. So he conducts a lot of, he doesn't just do light studies with the Amish. He also does genetic studies. Yeah. And they have this um, medical center in in Pennsylvania um, in the middle of Amish land. Um, and they go out and they connect, collect blood samples and, and so on and, and study the genetics of Amish people. So he ha he works with this Amish woman called Hannah. And he said, I'll just ask her if she'd pr be prepared to have this British journalist come and stay with her family for the weekend. And I had to, I had to basically... I had to basically, he tried, he, he made a massive leap of trust in me. Um, because he said, you know, they're very sensitive about people's perceptions of them. And I need to have your words that you're just going to go there to interview them about their light and sleep. And you're not going to start asking them about schooling and all that kind of thing. And I said, no, I, you know, I'm just a bit like fixated on light and sleep. Yeah. I just want to find out about this. So we set this up and, um, I went, I flew out, landed in New York and, the next day, uh, Teodor Postolake's daughter, who just graduated from high school, picked me up in her dad's massive truck and drove me out to Pennsylvania. Um, and we picked Hannah up at a farmer's market on the way because the Amish are not allowed to drive cars, but they are allowed to accept lifts from other people. Wow. And when she saw this massive truck, she was really, her eyes lit up because she was like, it's Memorial Day weekend, which is like a bank holiday weekend. Um, and there's loads of yard sales, yard sales. And you've just brought a massive truck so I can buy stuff and move stuff around. Um, so that's what we did. So when I went to bed, um, that night, uh, and she, she, she said, I, she said, what do you want to do while you're here? And I said, I literally want to stalk you. I just want to follow you around and see what you do over the course of these two or three days and ask you some questions and ask, you know, other people you interact with about their sleep and, and their light exposure. And she was like, okay, well, tomorrow we're going yard sale shopping and we're going to get up at the same time we usually do, which is 4.30. Is that okay with you? And I went, that's fine because <laughs> I've just come from the UK. So that's about 9.30. I'll be wide awake. Yes. <laughs> so it actually worked well with my jet lag. Um, but you know, we got up, um, they got up as they always do, had breakfast at sort of quarter to five and then went out and went to these yard sales, which, you know, car boot sales. And 
the whole like Amish community were out and about at sort of five or six in the morning. It was it was really strange, uh, but lovely. It was really nice, and um, I met lots of people, interviewed lots of Amish people. What struck me was that they do still have chronotypes. You know, there are definitely still people who identify as night owls. But if you ask them, you know, well, when would you like to go to sleep? And when would you like to wake up? I remember there was this woman called Katie Baylor who's like, oh, yeah, everyone thinks I'm so lazy because I just want to sleep in, but I have to get up for my husband. And I said, well, when would you ideally go to bed? She was like, oh, like 10 p.m. I know it's so late. <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> when would you like to get up? 6 a.m. So that's her definition of late, according She's to a her night society. Owl, according to her society, yeah, 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 which is really interesting. I it's, it just blows my mind hearing all this, just the way different people live. And you know, did you? Oh no, that's what I was going to say about the whole um, acceptance within the family and how I managed to connect with this Amish family. So Hannah was dead lovely, and she was really, you know, friendly. And I, I guess she's wor- used to working with non-Amish people because she's, you know, she works with. Teopostalake. Um, but her husband was a lot more, at least at first, kind of like you could see him being kind of quite shy, quite yeah. like, I'm not sure what's going on here. Her daughter-in-law especially was really, she was just kind of, I remember being sat in the back of the truck with her on the way to this yard sale and she was just, she wouldn't look at me. She was really like he on edge this. and who is this and what's she doing and who is, you know, because they, they have no contact, they have very yeah. little contact with people from outside their community. So they were very mistrustful. And the way I like the way we began to be friends and, and really engage was when I, you know, I talked about the fact that um, both me and my husband are freelance journalists and we, we share joint childcare. So we, we both kind of work more or less a four day week and we, we've always tried to share the childcare equally. And, and, um, and Ben, the, the, you know, the, the husband in this, in this relationship was like, well, that's what we do. You know, I, I've always been really involved with my kids and, and he was really fascinated. He was really fascinated by this idea that my husband also kind of like pitched in and did his, because his, his perception was that in, in the in, West, it's not like that. Yeah. It, yeah. Isn't that interesting? Cause you wouldn't, I, th- I don't think typically people would think that about the Amish. They no, think, no. well, because the dads work very close to home, you know, they're yeah. quite in and out of the house all day. So, you know, they, and they really, have big families as well. So they, you know, they're involved in their, is, in their it, children's lives in a way that fathers in, in our society often aren't. And I think that thing of having, you know, having, and also, you know, they're like parents live two doors down and everyone's much, it is a much closer community. And I think, I think that's right. I think there are probably lessons we can learn from these communities about, you know, reflect on our own lives. You mentioned, there's a section in your book, I can't remember where, where you talk about how in some societies, there's no term or word for insomnia. Yeah. And I mean, are the Amish one of those that you came no, across? No, I think that was, I think that was, it might be the Hadza in, Ta- in Tanzania. Yeah, yeah, which are, you know, a, a tribe in, in rural Tanzania. I, it reminds me of, um, I can't remember who gave this. It was a, I think it was a psychology professor. When I was a, either a medical student or a junior doctor, I went to this really amazing talk by someone and he was saying how these words that we take for granted, like indigestion or heartburn or, or gas, said in some societies around the world they don't have words for them they just Mm. don't exist because Mm. you know they they either don't experience them or their perception of it is completely different so they don't have a word for it and isn't it amazing how how language is so telling on this that if in our culture we don't have a word for something it's possibly because 
it's not an issue or is accepted as norm. And yeah. can you imagine if we didn't have a word for insomnia in English, given yeah. the way society is set up at the moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mad, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely, yeah. It, it's super fascinating. Um, you touched on social jet lag. You've also just mentioned jet lag. And I really want to sort of go in here because I think it's super interesting for people. Many people, of course, not everyone, have experienced jet lag at some point. And you talk about how NASA and, you know, the space station are really drilled in on how you best manage jet lag because they've spent so much time and money yeah. getting these astronauts ready. Yeah. You know, you can't let something as simple as jet lag, you know, waste yeah. time or efficiencies, right? So I wonder if you could expand a bit on that. Yeah, jet lag or or sleep deprivation, you know, they're, they're well aware that there have been, you know, like the, you know, space shuttle disasters, which have been related. And it's not just it's not just space, actually, but a lot of big industrial disasters have been like linked to sleep deprivation or they've occurred in the middle of the night when people are, you know, working the night shift. So they're really, you know, they're really like we need to do everything we can to make sure our um, our astronauts are well rested, don't have jet lag and are as alert as they possibly and as and are as, as I can't speak, and are, and I'm obviously not very alert. Social jet lag, are as right there. Alert as they possibly can be when they're on duty. So yeah, I mean, on the on the international on the the US part of the International Space Station, um, NASA has refitted the lights to try and um, to try and do just that to help its astronauts. Um, cope with the fact that because space is a really weird environment and that the sun rises i can't remember how often it is. i think Several it's every, times a day isn't it no it's more than that i think it, it's i think it rises every 90 minutes because you know wow. it's a weird environment um so if you're kind of and if and it tends to be very dim on the inside of the international space station so if you are kind of like in this dim environment and then suddenly you get this like brilliant flash of light every every you know 90 minutes um that can really mess up your circadian rhythms and and leave your you know leave you in this kind of permanently desynchronized state yeah. so um they have been doing a lot of work on trying to strengthen athletes rhythms so one thing they have is that when the when the when did i say athletes i mean astronauts, astronaut yeah when the astronauts go to sleep they do so in these little kind of coffin like pods and in there they have these lights and they can they can um they can put them into different modes but they you know in the run up to sleep they put them on a kind of dim amber kind of setting to help them you know wind down and get ready for sleep and then when they wake up first thing in the morning whatever morning is up there um they put it on the like really bright yeah. wake up setting um but NASA also invests a lot in their astronauts when they're on the ground. And actually some of the same um, scientists who are involved in the research on astronauts and, and work with astronauts also work very closely with um, professional athletes and sports teams to help them mitigate jet lag. That's huge, isn't it? And, and particularly in America where they've got the three time zones and the yeah, different teams absolutely. playing other teams yeah, at the one time zone. Yeah, and it's been shown that jet lag can really impair athletic performance. So, you know, I wish I wish that airlines would take this issue as seriously as as NASA and these these athletic teams. Well, do it's good, isn't it? A good thing that when NASA are doing this research and they're changing light tones and textures for their astronauts in space, 
at some point that's going to filter down. I think it will. I think it's happening very, but very, very slowly. So, you know, one thing they do, it, you, you can, you can make jet lag go away a lot faster than it does normally by optimizing your light exposure. So tell me about how do you make jet lag go away? Well, it's a bit complicated, but I'll do my best. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, to make this really practical, in about three weeks, I'm flying from Manchester to LA. Okay. And my flight is at 1 Mm p.m. from Manchester Airport, UK time, and I arrive at 4 p.m. LA time. Yeah. Okay. So, so... If you're flying from, you said from Manchester to LA in the afternoon, UK time, there's two kind of things that matter. The first thing you will always need to be thinking about is what time is it according to your body clock? So when you're flying to LA, even though you're traveling to a different country, you're still, your body is still on British time. Okay. And there's the other thing you have to get your head around is that light in the evening and at night delays your clock or makes you more of a night owl and light kind of soon after you wake up in the morning um, makes you more of a more of an early bird it, it advances the clock so if you're flying west to America say you want to delay your body clock you want to become more of a night owl because you know evening in LA is the middle of the night in the UK. So if you want to be able to stay up until like 10 at night, you need to be more night owlish basically. So basically I want to delay my body clock, which means I need to uh, limit light in the morning and expose myself to more light in the evening. According to where your body clock is. Right. Yeah. So not on LA time, on UK time. No, on UK time initially. And then gradually as you adapt, you need to kind of adapt your light exposure as well. So you go, you know, I'm still on UK time, but I want to delay my body clock. What do I need to do to delay my body clock? You need to be seeing light at night and in the evening, UK time. And that's easy if you're flying to LA, because when you get off the plane, it's going to be daytime in LA. So you're seeing light according to your body clock in the middle of the night. So that's why going west is easier than going east because you naturally... It's one reason why it's easier. One reason. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know your view on blue light blocking glasses, but the, I've always struggled with jet lag, but I was all right on my last trip mm. to the West Coast of America because I can't remember what time my flight was, but I think as soon as I got on the flight, I put on these really harsh red blocking glasses. I didn't watch the uh, in-flight entertainment, I think is the word. And halfway into the flight, when I thought it was around 7, 8 a.m., in in LA, I then started to take those glasses off and started right, so to expose you're totally myself ahead, ahead of the curve. So let's talk about coming back in the opposite direction. Yeah, but that actually worked. Yeah, yeah, that it, properly worked more than it had ever done before. And it, I thought it really does. But I changed yeah. a couple of things as well, like my caffeine intake. And I thought, okay, it's one of these two things or a bit of both. Yeah. But yeah, let's talk about the other way. So coming. Yeah. East. So the other way is the real challenge. And and sorry, they, they the glasses look red, but they're blocking the blue light. Yeah. Like from the blue part of the spectrum. Exactly. Um, and then when you're going in the opposite direction it's the opposite. You're wanting to advance your body clock, which means you want to be, and by now you'll be on LA time. So your your body clock is LA time. And that means that you need to be seeing light from kind of 7am LA time onwards um, to advance your body clock. And you need to be avoiding it really importantly in the night, LA time. What's, What's different about this for me is that it's a big shift in thinking. So 
you're not thinking about your new body clock and your new time zone. You're saying, I'm going there, but actually, what is my existing body clock? Do I need to push it forward or push it back? Exactly. If I need to push it forward, I do A and B. If I want to push it back, I do A and B, but you do it on your existing body clock. Yes. It's actually, once you get your head around it, it's quite simple. It is quite simple, but it's a bit, you have to like change. Yeah, you have to think about what time is my body on at the moment. So when you're going back east, when you're flying from LA to Manchester, you're trying to advance your body clock. And kind of typically what happens is people fly overnight. Well, I I am flying overnight. I'm leaving at 6.30 in the evening and I arrive in Manchester at 12.30, so lunchtime. Okay. So when I arrive at lunchtime in Manchester... Actually, LA is eight hours back, so it's going to be 4 a.m. in LA. So so it's the middle of the night in LA. So the last thing you want to be doing is getting off the flight in Manchester and suddenly seeing a load of bright light because it's the nighttime. You're trying to advance your body clock and that's going to delay your body clock. So what you really want is to wear a pair of really dark wraparound sunglasses for that whole flight and then especially when you get off the, the plane in Manchester and keep them on until your body clock reaches about 7am, then you can take them off and get as much light as possible because that will help you advance. Brilliant. If that makes sense. Yeah, love it. Yeah. So there's Stephen Lockley, who's one of these researchers who works with NASA astronauts and also these elite sports teams. And he did this for me as well, actually. He basically creates a kind of a sleep plan, a light plan. It's not just a sleep plan, it's a light plan, almost like a light prescription of, of when precisely you should be seeing light and when you should be avoiding light and when you should be taking melatonin and that kind of thing. And he's just recently launched an app. There are various apps now that will tell you about when you should be seeing light and avoiding light. Um, Like the principles are quite simple once you get your head around it, but like it does require a bit of thinking and some of it's quite counterintuitive. Like you don't, you know, that advice that you just live in your new time zone can sometimes really backfire and just, you know, well, I've sorted. I've, I've kind of, I've kind of cracked after many years of trying going west. Yeah. So now, with your new advice, I'm going to try and crack going east on my way back. Yeah. Well, my friend Dickie's actually he's a guitarist in a sort of 1980s band, Scritty Felitti. Right. And he, um, he was flying to Japan to, um, to do a, a Japan tour. Yeah. And I, it was when I was writing the book, and I said, I tell you what, I'm going to try and. Um, I'm going to try, can I try and write you a jet lag plan based on what I've learned from, from Stephen Lockley? And I did it. And he said, he, he was like, you, you, I, I did it and it worked really well. And the rest of the bands were completely flawed with jet lag and I was fine. Well, um, so I think it does make it, and I've, I've definitely, since, since I learned all this, I, it's changed how I deal with jet lag well, and it does make it much better. It, you know, and this is the, you know, ultimately air travel's not going away. We love it too much. We love mm. exploring different parts of the world. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of funny because on the way out there, I, I always go out to work. So I'm very busy when I'm out there getting up early on my old times it's not a problem you can use caffeine and coffee to keep going and you can sort of get through the days yeah it's coming back so i come home to family life yeah. and kids and work routines and it's yeah. sometimes you, you're flawed in the morning you know you're yeah. just not with it at all mm. um so i think that's that's really interesting and i and i i think when people read your book when they understand the principles it's not that tricky no. um to, to kind of figure it out yeah. but also you need a strong will right because as we were saying earlier on in the podcast, often we find the environment in which we're in too challenging to make behavior. So a lot of people will go, 
yeah, but I'm just not going to wear these kind of wacky glasses from 7am when I land to 3pm. Yeah. Now, I will. I, I, I would yeah, actually do too. that. Yeah, me too. I have no shame. Yeah. I mean, I was, go- I was walking around the air cabin and going to the toilet with shades on and the air crew were a bit like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, let me tell you about exactly. what's wrong with your plane. <laughs> but, it's, but it is And they inter- found it really fascinating, you know, because they really, you know, air crew completely have these issues with jet lag yeah. and they worry about this shift working thing. Well, and hey, so when I explained it, they were like, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it, I understand why you're wearing we- dark glasses to the toilets. That's quite weird, but now we understand. We actually have a lot of air crew listening to this podcast because I get ah, lots of yeah. uh, messages from cabin crew um saying oh this and that and they they worry about their jobs so if anyone is listening to this they have a boss at virgin or ba and they want to come on and talk on the podcast about this and how you can change lighting uh to you know better serve your employees basically so that they can function better there's less of a risk to their health you know please get in touch we would be delighted to have that conversation because i think it's super well i would as well yeah i do and actually hospitals are starting to take this on board as well there have been a few really interesting studies looking at trying to improve the light environment in hospitals to strengthen patients circadian rhythms and try and help them recover faster look there's no question that you know we're having a bit of a joke about jet lag and and glasses and stuff this is serious this is um this is super serious stuff because our society has moved on we do live in a 24-hour society um some of the some of the people who help us the most in society you know ambulances uh, firefighters shift workers nurses in hospitals or you know and, and the list goes on porters in hospitals mm. um actually in many ways are putting their health at risk by doing these jobs and i think yeah. as a, as as a progressive society we need to start taking this seriously we need to think about some solutions for these workers who are helping us security staff yeah. you know it is quite tragic isn't it that these are the people in society who often are taking the brunt off this yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think that works ongoing. And I think the thing is, we need shift workers. We need shift work. Yeah. You know, we need, like you say, we need people to Society's moved on now. Yeah, yeah. We can't really go back to, and, and it does enable us to be more productive if we can work shifts. Yeah. Um, but we need to find a way to help shift workers. Um, there's some really interesting work going on again in America. Again, actually, so Stephen Lockley's at, at Harvard and, and um, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, There's also some really interesting research going on there about whether you could, you know, given that people have to work the night shift, what can you do to mitigate the effects of that on people's health? So they are looking at whether meal timing could try and whether meal timing could make it have a bit less of a negative impact on health. So the idea here is that you know, one problem with working the night shift, apart from being exposed to light in the middle of the night, is that you tend to eat in the middle of the night as well. And so, you know, like I said earlier, meal timing can also affect the timing of your your clocks in all your organs and tissues. And so maybe if you avoid eating overnight and snacking overnight, even if you have to stay up all night and work the night shift, that's going to have less of an impact on your, on your rhythms and cause less havoc and desynchrony than if you're both seeing light at the wrong time staying up overnight and and also eating and and you know just perpetuating this desynchrony i mean i think this work's going to be ongoing i think the field is accelerating it has to and as more and more research comes out perhaps we can continue this conversation at some point yeah Um, i'd love to yeah because it really is fascinating you've written a a brilliant brilliant book I, i can't recommend it enough i think people will learn a lot and they'll find it very fascinating and interesting as they read it as a sort of final thought from me, um, I can't help but think that, you know, your books are out of the sun, right? It's a brilliant title, Chasing the Sun. 
but but in many ways, you know, this is reflective of how, as humans living in, you know, as humans living these modern lives, we've lost our connection to the natural world. Mm. You know, the sun is one part of that. We've also lost connection to our food supply. We've lost connection to so many more things than mm. just the sun. I think the yeah. sun almost epitomizes it, but yeah. but it's just reflective of. Of, you know, you mentioned before about these different seasons and how we, we almost try and override these seasons. You, I think yes. you mentioned in your, your story, you met some people in Scandinavia who, you know, they hibernate in the winter. They mm. don't go out much. They don't feel like socializing, but they embrace it, yeah. right? They embrace it and recognize that actually, you know, we've got different seasons. So maybe our behavior should be different in different seasons. Maybe we shouldn't try and override nature and make sure, you know, even to the point of, you know, eating ripe fruits and blueberries in the summer, yet we're still having it with our Christmas pudding now because yeah. we can buy blueberries from Kenya in December. You know, yeah. it, it goes far beyond sunlight for me. Sunlight, yeah. of course, is important, but I think we've lost our connection to the natural world. Yes, I agree. And to the way we, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, family connections and and, yeah. and community. I think that's also a, a massive change in the modern world. And I think it matters. All of this matters. It, it really does matter. Um, this podcast, as you all know, is called Feel Better, Live More. I genuinely believe from talking to people, from what I've seen in my practice for nearly 20 years, is that when people feel better in themselves, they get more out of their life. And I think your research and your book, uh, you know, very clearly demonstrates that. So, I wonder if you could leave my listeners with a few tips, some actionable tips, hopefully inspire them. Hopefully at the end of a conversation that I, I, I think they're going to have found fascinating um, to go and make some of these changes into their lives. So, so what are some of your top tips that you think are practical for most people? Okay. I think the first one would be to try and dim your evenings and brighten your days. Um, that doesn't, as I said, it doesn't mean that you have to completely abolish artificial light at night. Um, but you can do simple things like turn off the overhead ceiling lights, switch to kind of dimmer, um, dimmer table lamps, those kind of things. Um, make sure that you, if you're using screens, that you um, try and put them on night mode, but also double check that the, di that the screen is dimmer at night. Um, and it should look a bit redder, ideally. But bear in mind that that won't completely reduce all the all the like blue spectrum light that you're exposed to. So you do also need to try and put it off. Put it off, definitely. Like in the immediate run up to run up to bed. And again, we, you know, this is a kind of a holistic approach as well. You know, if you're if you're kind of like checking work emails just before bed, I certainly find this. You know, I I then like can't go to sleep because I'm I'm thinking about work. Um, so so try and avoid bright and particularly blue spectrum light and and often the light doesn't look blue it kind of looks whitey uh like bright white so just try and kind of go for that kind of more orangey softer warm lighting and keep it dim and kind of cozy kind of romantic lighting is what you should be aspiring okay. to in the evenings and in the daytime just to you know you i realize that i'm really lucky i'm a freelance journalist i can kind of choose my work hours i can you know i can yeah. go for walks around the block when i feel like it apart from the whole deadline thing. <laughs> um, but um, I think there are little things you can do to just boost your light exposure, you know, like walk to work, cycle to work, go for a walk around the block. It doesn't have to take huge amount of time, um, but you know, you're, you're also getting some exercise. You're also getting up from your desk. You're often like just breaking, you know, just having a little bit of time to reflect on what you've been doing 
if it's a nice day, not obviously if it's raining, it's more challenging, but you know, eat your lunch in the park, invite your friends for, or your colleagues to, you know, take a walk around the block and discuss that issue that you're, you're kind of working on together while walking. So you're getting exercise and light. And I think the other main message is about regularity. You know, it is hard and I struggle with this as well, but where possible, try and keep a more regular schedule. So try and go to bed at more or less the same time every night. Obviously, sometimes that's not going to happen, but just try to do it as much as possible and get up at the same time each morning um, and try and be, try to avoid eating at night and again, and drinking alcohol. And that's challenging as well. But I think, you know, when you start doing it, you'll realize you feel better when you, when you, when you live like that. Yeah, Linda, some brilliant tips there. A lot of quite simple tips there, which um, I I find fascinating that I can talk to a variety of different experts on a variety of different topics. And often some of the tips are quite similar. And I find that fascinating because the science can be incredibly complex, but actually some of the practical take-homes are very straightforward. And mm. I really hope that that's inspiring and empowering for people. Yeah. Uh, Linda, thanks for making the journey up here today. Uh, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming. And uh, maybe we'll continue this at some point in the future. I would love to. Thank you for having me. No worries. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. What did you think? Were you aware of the importance of natural light? As always, really do think about one thing that you can take from today's conversation and apply into your own life. How are you going to ensure that you have more natural light in the day and less artificial light in the evening? And how are you going to implement more regularity into your own sleep-wake cycle? As always, please do let Linda and I know what you thought of today's conversation and what tips you are going to try and implement by getting in touch on social media. Instagram, Facebook, and if you can, especially on Twitter, please do use the hashtag FBLM so that I can easily find your comments. The show notes page for this episode is drchatterjee.com forward slash 77. So do go there to read some interesting articles related to what we discussed on the podcast today. A lot of what was discussed today revolved around the importance of natural light for many aspects of our health, especially our sleep. Now, I wrote about this topic in detail in my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, but also in my latest one, The Stress Solution. In addition, there is a special section for night shift workers in The Stress Solution with practical tips to help deal with some of the struggles that people who work shifts often have. Both of my books, The Four Pillar Plan and The Stress Solution, are available to buy all over the world in paperback, ebook, or as audiobooks, which I am narrating. So if you are interested and want to support this podcast, please do go and pick up a copy. Remember, from the start of this new season of the podcast, I am trying to video every single conversation. Many of you I know prefer video conversations, but also many of you have told me that you have friends and family that don't do audio podcasts, but do like video conversations. Please do either go to my Facebook page or to my YouTube channel to watch these conversations. Please also do go and subscribe to my YouTube channel. I'm creating a lot of other educational videos around health, which you can only see on my YouTube channel. You can go to drchatterjee.com forward slash YouTube to go straight there. Now, 
if you enjoy my weekly shows, please do consider supporting them by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing with your friends and family on your social media channels. Or you can do it the old-fashioned way and simply tell your friends and family about the show. As always, I really do appreciate your support. As I mentioned in the introduction, I'm looking to expand my team at the moment. So if you think you have a skill set that would be useful, please do email on info at drchatterjee.com. I'm particularly interested in people with social media experience and expertise. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing and for Dr. Chatterjee for producing this week's podcast. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back very shortly with my latest episodes. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.